we're going to be continuing the series that um, Steve and Tammy started about uh, about eight weeks ago. We, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at um, being invitational with a particular focus on um, the Alpha course that we've got coming up in September. Um, but we're returning to the to the series that we started before that. Okay, I've not done any slides, any Bible verses. So if you haven't brought your Bible to church or don't have it on a device, shame on you. You will be judged. Um, not by me, of course, um, only by God. I'll leave all the judging to him. Um, I jest. Um, so, yeah, if you want to grab your Bibles or whatever di- devices you've got, um, we are going to be looking at Acts 6 today. Um, I hear that Tammy knocked it out of the park a couple of no, a few weeks ago with Acts 5, um, and we were sad to miss that. Um, Pete and I took a little holiday that week, um, so it's been, we're going to be carrying on from where Tammy left off um, from Acts 5. Um, so let's just read Acts 6, and then we'll just refresh a bit of where we've got to. So we're reading Acts 6, 1 to 7. As the believers... Rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers, and so the brothers selected seven men who were well-respected and full of, full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert of the Jewish faith. These seven men were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So we're entering um, this part of the of Acts um, where the church has been established for a little while and we are sort of starting to see um, some rumblings of discontent in the church. Um, so we started off looking at Acts um, with looking at how Jesus sort of handed over the, the mission to build his church. Um, and we, and we, uh, in Acts 1 we looked at how Jesus sort of left that commission to um, his disciples and ascended into heaven. And then in Acts 2, we looked at how the community sort of merged together, how that evolved into a new community. There wasn't anything before that called the church. There wasn't anything called Christians um, before that. So um, we see sort of Christians coming together and trying to figure out how do we do this thing called church. And to be honest, you know, 2000, no, not 2000, yeah, 2000 years later, we're still trying to work out how do we do this thing called church that's relevant to our community and our society and that can be expressed in all different ways in all different churches. Um, but we can return to the book of Acts to see how it was all started and what Jesus sort of intended it to look like. Um, and we can see in Acts 2 um, that the name of Jesus was the real power behind the church. It says in Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, you know, so when all of the church politics and discontent and frustrations get in the way that's one of the real um sort of real founding things that we base our church on that everyone who calls in the name of Jesus can be saved and we see his his name being put into action um, and the church growing in confidence and going out and and healing 
Um, in Acts 3, we see about um, a lame man who's healed and just the power of God um, that, that was in, at work in this time. Um, and we also see some conflict in society. Um, that there was, they faced a lot of opposition. They were thrown into jail and then the, um, the doors of jail were broken open and, and they got set free. Um, and we see that, um, I love the bit in um, Acts 5, I'm, I'm sure Tammy sort of touched on this, where it says we must obey God rather than any human authority. Um, and, you know, they, amongst all this craziness that was going on, um, and they were told, you know, if you carry on like this, you know, you're going to be put to death. But all this stuff going on, um, they just sort of said, look, let's not get distracted from what we need to be doing here. Um, this is about the name of Jesus and furthering his gospel, and we need to put our faith in God. Um, and I just think, you know, it's amazing that we can still have this to look back on, but also to sort of inspire us and, and say, how do we how do we do church? Um, and, you know, what are the real real foundations of it? Um, and so when we get to Acts 6, one of the, just start off, it says, as they multiplied, so as the church was growing and getting bigger in number, um, there was rumblings of discontent. And I'm sure that all of you have been part of some sort of group or system, whether it's a church history or whether it's um, a workplace environment or even family as, as new children come along and the family expands. You know, there can be sort of rumblings of discontent. There can be problems. Um, it would be great to say, right, they're just multiplying a number and everything's just going swimmingly and brilliantly. Um, but in any environment, it causes some conflict. Um, all of us bring our own stuff um, and, and that can then can cause some, some problems. So here we've got some Greek-speaking believers and some Hebrew-speaking believers saying that um, the, uh, the Greek complained about the Hebrews saying that they're being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Um, so, you know, they're saying, well, you know, they've got it better than we have and are really starting to complain about that. Um, if you've if you've done any sort of teamwork training before, you might have heard of the phrase that was came about in the 1960s by Bruce Tuckerman um, called forming, storming, norming, performing. Has anybody heard of that before? Um, yeah, if you're part of it, some sort of business or things like the county council, doing sort of teamwork training, those sort of things, um, you might have heard of that phrase. So the church has formed. We've got motivated, enthusiastic individuals. They're finding their place. Um, if you've, I think this is probably a girly thing. If you develop a new friendship with somebody, um, probably is a girly thing, um, and you suddenly realise that you've got loads in common with them, you know, like, I like ice cream. Me too! I love ice cream! You know, and all of a sudden you've got all this stuff in common. Um, that's probably quite general. Um, but this, the church has been through this great phase of, um, I love Jesus. Yeah, me too. Let's, let's go and do this. This is so exciting. Um, probably a little bit better than ice cream. Um, just, just a little bit. Um, so, you know, the church has been through this real honeymoon phase of everything's great. And then comes the storming phase, um, when true colours start to come out, when people are a bit tired, a bit hassled, you know, they've been turning up at 8 o'clock for the last 10 weeks, and actually, why is nobody else here? Um, so they're getting a bit sort of fed up um, about some of the things going on. And in this situation, they're fed up because um, there's a bit of a division between these two different groups of people that have come with their own cultures and their own ways of doing things. And it's not fair. They're getting a better deal than we're getting. Um, and often, 
you know, not just in churches, but in any any sort of group context, that's where things can break down. When you hit the storming phase, you've got two choices. You either deal with it and deal with it constructively, or it can just break down and then you go back to the forming stage and just say, look, let's just give up and just start a new group, start a new church, start something new, we're off. Um, But if you can develop through that phase and pass through it, you can become a stronger team. And here we see a really great example of the church becoming a lot stronger as they go through this storming phase and start to go to what the next stage is called norming. So they're tolerating others, they're avoiding conflict, and they're moving on. They're starting to create new systems um, and new ways of doing things and, and saying, you know, this is okay, we can we can work with each other. You know, yeah, that person is quite annoying, but let's just work out how to sort of... Um, how to tolerate that, and actually I'm, I'm quite annoying too, so it kind of works. Um, and then yeah, that can move you on to the next stage of performing. So um, that's when it can be really effective. And most groups, and particularly we can see in the church, that it has to go through those phases to be really effective in performing, in being motivated, um, and not just that first motivation that they had, but moving forward to actually going, do you know what, this is so good, let's go and share this with others. Um, let's get the job done. Um, and then there's a, a fifth phase that's been sort of tucked on the end here, which is called a journey, um, which is recreating that successful group. So it's gone so well that maybe it then divides and, and creates a new group, which we see sometimes with um, sort of traditional cell group structures and church planting, where something's so good, you can send off a team and say, go and have a go at yourself, and they'll, they'll go through the same sort of development as they become a new team. So the church has, has had its, its fair share of conflict already, um, but this is the first time we see conflict within the church between, um, between the, the Christians. And it's starting to, you know, they're, they're hit with the reality of, do you know what, we're, we're going to have problems. Um, and every new thing, um, people like to give their ideas to. Pete's um, had the honour of um, supporting Susie with, with the Good Loaf um, Bakery, which is fantastic. I really encourage you to go along and get a loaf of bread and a nice cup of coffee there. <clears throat> um, but I'm sure that they wouldn't mind me saying, everybody has got an opinion. You know, Everybody will be able to have, want to have a say of what colour the walls are going to be painted or how many loaves of bread should be baked or what colour the balloons are going to be. I didn't make myself popular when we went to the opening yesterday and I said, grey balloons? And Pete said, I said grey balloons. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, so everybody's got an opinion on how things should be done. And we see this here. You know, the Greeks start complaining that the Hebrew, basically it's a food bank, um, so it's a food programme. Uh, they start complaining that the Hebrew food bank's better than theirs. They're saying, look, they've got the Heinz beans, we've got the Tesco Valley ones. They've got the nice fresh milk, we've got the UHT milk. It's not fair, our widows are getting a, a raw deal here. And what the uh, leaders could have done here is say, look, this is not my problem. I do not want to hear about all of this whinging. Just just go away. Or they could have just buried their head in the sand and said, oh, we've got these people grumbling. Oh, oh I don't know what to do. Oh, let's just, let's just try and ignore them. Or they could have entered into a fight. Well, actually, you, you, know, you got this last month and they got this this month and, and you've not been turning up early and you've not been paying enough into it. But what they did was they dealt with the conflict in a really constructive way. And it probably, if they had have dealt with it differently, uh, we might have seen a split in the church at this point with the Hebrews and the Greeks going off in their own directions, doing their own food banks that were um, competing against each other that was better than theirs. And, you know, it, the grumblings could have continued. And um, so 
going back to Acts 6, it says the 12 called a meeting of all their believers. Um, And what we know from uh, what we see in the sort of church history is that when they met together, they welcomed the Holy Spirit. They prayed, they centered their meetings around God. um, And they didn't use it to have a big um, slagging matter against each other and everybody wanting to have a big complaint. Um, They just met and they worshipped and they would have prayed um, and they would have really sort of been centered on the Holy Spirit. And they respected the fact the Greeks had come to them with a problem and they gave it time and consideration. Um, they didn't just send them away, but they gave them, gave them that really valuable time of theirs. And what they then did was it said, um, they said, we should spend our time, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running the food program. So basically, we'll delegate some others and give them responsibility. It's a bit like what's happened with... Um, with the food bank in, in our church. So we got to a point in our church um, where we were saying, do you know what, this could take up a lot of the time of the leadership team um, and we could actually delegate this out and so that it's um, it could be run really effectively and other people can have responsibility um, and then the pastoral leaders can have responsibility for the church and we can give our time to, um, to teaching the word of God. And so... You know, this, everybody agreed, yet yeah, this is a, this is a good solution to it. Um, and they were able to then focus on building the church. And I'm happy to say this message hasn't come from a need to address any conflict within our church. It's just where we've got to in the scriptures. Um, so I'm not using this as a sideways way of, of, uh, trying to deal with the problem that we've got. But I know that quite often, um, you know, quite a lot of people in this room might have suffered some, um, some fallout from from a church, conflict in the church. And sadly, the church is quite famous for conflict um, and conflict within the church. So many of you might have been hurt or experienced massive conflict that's been handled badly. And for a time, we felt that Central Vineyard became a bit of a hospital where we would welcome people in. And Pete and I joined the church in, in same similar situation um, where people would be welcomed in um, who had experienced conflict within the church and problems within the church that was just actually, you know, I'm sure that grieved God to see um, to see people hurt by that. But what we're not going to dwell on is, is you know, all how it's done badly, but we're going to look at how it can be done well. Um, and I think we've been through a time, and others might feel, you might still feel in that in that phase, but I feel like we're moving out of that. Um, of that period of time and actually we're now ready you know people have had that time to refresh and to heal um, and God is challenging us as a church of do you know what you can be a witness to other people of how to handle conflict well um, and I'd love to say you know in Central Vineyard we will have no conflict it will be perfect everybody will get on really well um, but that would be a joke um, and that would be the same as burying your head in the sand because there will be conflict that comes up between those of us in this room, and that each of us will have to deal with outside of the room. Um, So we're going to look at how we can manage that well, rather than how we can avoid it happening at all. Um, And I guess the church is quite a unique environment, because it's kind of part business, part family, with kind of blurry lines of community and co-workers. And it's a melting pot of customs and cultures and rituals and traditions. So everybody's come with their own own way of doing things and their own personality 
And we kind of allow emotions to bubble up and we encourage a rawness in our um, worship to God and a vulnerability as we as we worship God and, and share with each other. We encourage you to be open and honest with each other, to be in huddles, to be in connect groups, to form relationships. And yet we're really surprised then with all of that emotion and all of that, you know, mix of stuff when conflict happens. And we become much more deeply hurt when conflict happens within the church. We expect better of Christians. Um, I think we have very high expectations of how we, how other Christians should behave towards us. And um, sometimes forget that that also means how we should behave towards others. Um, we might expect it in our workplace. We might expect conflict when we go to work in a secular job. We might expect it, um, you know, with with our children at school. We might expect it anywhere that you go, um, and any form of your social lives. Maybe even in your extended family, you're like, you know what? That's just my dad. He's just a wally. Um, I probably shouldn't say that. My dad is a bit of a wally, but I love him. Um, don't record that bit. Um, but. You know, you might expect some sort of conflict within lots of other circumstances. And when you know that you've got that family party coming up, you're like, oh, man, everybody's going to be arguing. And there's all that conflict. Um, But in church, we don't expect that. We want it to be fantastic and everybody to get on really well. Um, And, you know, when we have the time when we're just sort of all chatting and having a coffee, um, we expect everybody to be, oh, yeah, I'm great. I've had a great week. Hi, how are you? Big hugs and kisses. It's a lovely place. Everybody's always happy. No problems. But when we look at, you know, this, we're real people and it's okay for things to not always happen perfectly, um, but we can handle that well. Um, and the Bible tells us that we should expect this um, because not only are we human and there's, you know, there can be conflict when, when we're, all the stuff that I've said, but also we're entering, we, we are part of a spiritual battle. Ephesians 12, uh, 6, 12 says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Um, and often, well, it, it does, uh, conflict feels very real um, and very physical. So to say it's not flesh and blood can kind of be a bit confusing. But spiritual doesn't mean it's any less real. Like, don't mix up spiritual and fantasy. Um, spiritual is very, very real. Um, a spiritual battle is phenomenal. Um, and, I mean, if you if you want to sort of look more into what that but that looks like as a, as a real thing, um, read Daniel 10. It describes a sort of physical battle going on in the heavenly realms. Um, but there is more than 40 verses in the Bible that tell us that there is a spiritual battle going on, that what's going on on earth isn't just all there is to it. There's a lot more going on in the spiritual realm. Um, Satan's plot, it says in 10, uh, John 10.10, 10, is to steal, kill and destroy and his best target is the church. Um, if you think about any of the any of the um, big wars, you know, maybe sort of think back to World War Two, um, the bomber planes always targeted like the munitions factories and the um, barracks wherever the soldiers were. Um, they wanted to target. They wanted to prevent new weapons being being made, and they wanted to destroy the army ready to come and fight them. And that effectively is the church. We are sort of equipping soldiers here and we're sharing with you new tools, new weapons to fight this war. We're becoming equipped to go out into the world. Satan is going to love this as a target. Um, He wants to cause conflict in the ranks. But I'm not going to give, you know, too much time or credit to to Satan because actually Jesus um, tells us that we have a much stronger power on our side. 
and that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. If the early church had been absorbed by the competition arising between the Hebrews and the Greeks, it wouldn't have been effective in sharing, um, sharing with the world. And in the same way, if we aren't getting along within the church, it becomes a really hard place to be. And then why would we want to share with others and invite them into it? If, if Satan gets a foothold and we allow conflict to fester, then it becomes somewhere that why would we invite anybody else here? Because it sucks for us. Um, so we're instructed to be, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith and be strong. We're given God's spiritual armour. Ephesians 6 tells us about all the pieces of armour that God gives us to fight this spiritual battle. And God promises to be on our side. He says, do not be, do not fear or be distrayed, dismayed. Be strong and courageous. Um, in Joshua 10, um, he um, cuts off the head of 10 kings and sticks them on spikes and says, this is what the Lord will do to all of your enemies with whom you fight. Okay, we've got a God who means business on our side. Um, he will cut off the heads of our enemies and stick them on a spike in the spiritual realms. Um, don't get on the wrong side of any of us. That's all I'm saying. So, and one of the most powerful we- weapons in this armour is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We need to know God's word. We need to know how to deal with battles that we see played out on earth and act in accordance to his will. And his will for the church is to be united and not to fight against one another. Jesus prayed in John 17 for unity. He prayed for all believers. I've given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I'm in them and you're in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you have sent me and that you have loved, loved, and that you love them as much as you love me. So he was saying, may they experience such perfect unity. He wants us to be united. But one of the purposes of that is so that the world will know that Jesus is real and that that God loves us and loves others outside of the church. He's actually making the point that the church is on display here. When the church handles conflict in a way that's really healthy um, and is honouring other people, the world will see that. And in the same way, if we handle conflict really badly and when there's infight and, and just a lot of craziness going on in the church that's also on display and I know I don't know whether you've ever experienced conflict within the church but it's quite hard to kind of portion that bit off and not tell anybody about it and so you end up being as much of a witness for the church in a negative way as in a positive way people often don't want to be part of the church um, and they can see us thinking that we or they think that we think that we're better than everybody else you know have you ever heard of people sort of saying like holier than thou attitude and you know or goody two shoes sort of things um, they think that Christians think they're so much better than everybody else um, and then they also I've heard said a lot oh religion's responsible for a lot of what um, all of the wars in the world so there's this kind of um this kind of thing going on that people think, well, Christians think they're so good, but they're responsible for all this conflict. You know, it's not really a great reputation. Um, and maybe it goes back as far as the Crusades or even further back in sort of church history um, of Christians going out and preaching the name of God um, and cutting off people's heads at the same time. Um, not not a great move. Um, so we our challenge is, yeah, we, we're you know, not going to be going around wielding swords at people and forcing them into being Christians. But do we still kind of live up to this reputation? Do we, 
how do we challenge that in terms of um, thinking that we're great, but actually adding in a re- acting in a really cruddy way? So people judge us not only in our attitudes and behaviours, um, what's happening within the church, but also outside of the church as Christians. And even if you don't go around telling everybody every day and post on Facebook, I'm a Christian, Jesus loves me, I'm so great. You know, people actually pick up. If you've ever shared with anybody that you're a Christian, and then, you know, that was 10 years ago, it's in their mind still. And it's funny because you don't remember, you don't often think they're seeing me as a Christian. You think they're seeing me as as Anya or seeing me as um, Pete or whatever. But it's in the back of their mind. And soon as we slip up, they'll say, you call yourself a Christian? Um, years ago, when I was in a, a work situation, I was had a, there was some conflict within work, and um, I had a, a boss that was very difficult to work with, and she would um, sort of try and turn people against each other. Um, and to my shame, I got involved in this um, and tried to sort of get on her side and ended up saying something quite negative about a colleague. Um, and acting in a way that wasn't wasn't a good witness at all. Um, and I was quite surprised because she said, I'd have thought better of you, you're a Christian. Um, and even though I was only acting like the same way she was, um, but she thought that I, sh- you know, she held me up to this moral standpoint. Um, and it really challenged me because I thought, you know what, we're representing Christ in everything that we do, and it's not just how we handle conflict within the church. If there's conflict outside of the church... Um, it's how we, you know, it's how we sh- we show that, how we deal with that. We are the church 24/7, not just on a Sunday. So in our homes and in our workplaces, in the supermarket, if we don't handle conflict well in those situations, then we, the, as the church, don't handle conflict well at all. Quite often, um, the way that we deal with conflict is sort of modelled on how it's. Um, it's yeah, modelled on the way it's been taught to us. So the most obvious sort of role models to us would be our parents. Um, and maybe they've sort of shown you how to deal with conflict. And you might say, I'm never going to be like them. Or you might have picked up some of those traits. Have anybody, uh, maybe even if you don't want to think about your parents' sort of way of dealing with conflict between each other, you might think about another sort of a relationship or role models to you. Anybody um, know somebody who's a, a bottler, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine, no, 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 there's no problem here, and then a massive explosion, you know, a big eruption, um, and everything comes out. Or you might be familiar with the passive-aggressive person who might say things like, well, I don't know, maybe I just care about our kids. <laughs> Anybody familiar with that kind of person? <laughs> or maybe you might have a, a parent or grown-up around somebody who's a, a denial. Nope. Everything's okay. No, no, we're not going to talk about this. Let's just move on um, and just ignore the ignore the problem. Or maybe I think this is um, probably Pete and I. Um, we sort of enter into a bit of a lawsuit. Um, we could do it with Sam there, kind of giving us some some uh, defence. Um, you know where where he'll say, "Well, you know, you never, you never. Um, the kitchen's a right mess. Why did you leave it like that? Well, actually, if you look in the bedroom, your side of the bed's a real mess." Well, you didn't put the milk away in the fridge. Well, you didn't do this. Well, and, you, you know, you're trying to look at a way to compete against each other. Um, not not good witness there at all. Um, but rarely does it end up with a victory. Um, and if it does, it's not a, not a sweet victory at all. Um, if you win, you kind of lose because everything's just messed up. So turn to the person next to you <clears throat> just for a minute, just so I'm checking not falling asleep. Um, what 
role models have you had in your life that might have played out one of those, um, or some, maybe it's different, as sort of the conflict? What, what role models of conflict do you relate to? Okay, have we got anybody here whose role models are a, a bottler? Anybody who just stores it all up and then it explodes? Yeah, a few show of hands. Anyone had a role model that's a passive-aggressive? No, no passive-aggressive role model. Oh, a few at the back. Anyone that's had a, a denial? Let's just not talk about it and sweep it under the carpet. Yeah. Uh, anyone who's got a role model that's the, the lawsuit? We're going to just fire the arrows at each other until one of us dies. Yeah. Okay, so... You know, maybe some of us or all of us have had some not so healthy examples of, of dealing with conflict. In Act 6, um, as the complaints arise and the two groups of people are sort of saying that they're not being treated fairly, um, the church deals with it really well in such a way that it brings positive attention to the church. It says at the end, the number of believers was greatly increased. So, excuse me, we know that this has been dealt with really well. And how do they know how to deal with, with conflict in a healthy way? Um, they didn't have the Bible for reference, but what they did have, of course, was um, that they had spent time with Jesus and they'd listened to his guidance and his, his wisdom firsthand. And I'd really encourage that. You know, we don't have Jesus physically with us here, but if you've got a, a conflict or an issue that you're needing to deal with, just spend some time with him. Um, and, you know, we've got his word as well. Listen to him and he will most often make the really complicated situation a lot simpler, either by giving you peace about it or by giving you a strategy to handle it. Um, so we'll look at, at where they got their wisdom from. So in Matthew 18, we see what the apostles would have learned and heard. Um, Jesus talked about correcting another believer. Matthew 18, verse 15. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offence. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a Gentile or tax collector. So the teaching is quite simple here. We've got three points that Jesus wants to make. Um, you know, of how, three steps rather of how to deal with it. Um, and perhaps it's harder to follow through on those steps, but if we get them in the right order, it's going to have a dramatic impact on the overall health of our church. So the first step is if you've got an issue with another person, go directly to them in private. It doesn't say contact them via Facebook, email them, text them, or even call them. Obviously, they didn't have that technology then, but it doesn't give any sort of suggestion of other ways to deal with it. It says go to them directly in person. Often written texts can be misinterpreted. Has anybody here had an experience where you've written something or read something that wasn't as it was intended? Yeah, you know, when you sort of add that smiley face and the person sending it is thinking, ha you know, this is, you're a nice person, I'm sending you a smile, and the person who reads it thinks, they think I'm a joker, what? <laughs> you know, or you, you know, things can be quite easily mis- misinterpreted on text. Um, only 7% of our communication is through words, so 55% is through body language and 38% is pitch. Um, so the one thing written down might be read as a, you know, in a different tone of voice. Going face-to-face allows you to put the point across. It gives the person, the other person the right of response. And it can avoid sort of a long conflict and things going back and forth. 
It also gives the other person the um, sort of, it shows that they're important. If you give them time, actually that's one of the most precious things that we have. I'm sure we've all sort of felt week to week that our time is really precious, that um, making time to meet with somebody, even if it's a nice thing like, you know, just out for a coffee together, it's, I need to look at my diary and find out when I've got time to do that because there's so much other stuff going on. So to honour somebody by giving them the time to talk is is really, you know, it shows them that what they're worth and what the relationship is worth. So it's not always easy to go to somebody with a conflict, but if you skip this step, everything else unravels. Um, and there's a couple of useful tools that we could get in the habit of using um, as a church. The first, really, really simple, is just going up to somebody that, you know, if you feel like there's a bit of tension, are we okay? Um, it was quite funny because some of the guys, Sam and... Um, no, everybody's here. Chris and Shelley were, uh, Marcus were a, a teaching thing a couple of weeks ago, and they were told, what was it? You had to thank you, say thank you to everybody. And they came back saying thank you to everybody for everything. I was like, what have you guys been at? Um, so they were just saying thank you to everybody for, thank you for my cup of coffee. Thank you for putting the, the cakes out, everything. So we're gonna, we're gonna have a, a bit, a bit of a buzzword as a church of, are you okay? So I'm expecting everybody after the service to be going up to everybody else, are you okay? Are we okay? Um, so it's a, a we okay and it's giving the other person the freedom to be able to respond honestly you know actually do you know what a few weeks ago you said this and it really upset me and I haven't wanted to bring it up with you but um, or it gives them the freedom to go yeah we're great there's no problem here so instead of kind of tiptoeing around that person that you might have a bit of an issue with or not sure whether there's a bit of a conflict it can just be asked in a really easy informal way are we okay is everything okay here between us um, and then a tech, second tool is maybe a bit harder, um, but it's called giving the last 10%, the final 10%. So have you ever had a heart-to-heart with somebody um, and you, you're like, yeah, okay, I'm going to meet with this person and I'm going to tell them da, 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 all this stuff that I need to say. And then when you get there, you're like, so yeah, because you don't really want to go in with the bun, with the big guns, you know, you don't really want to say everything that's going on. And because you're such lovely people, I'm sure that you are probably quite familiar with doing this, of kind of going in gently and just, yeah, so things maybe aren't particularly great, but, you know, just skirting around those issues. But maybe if you've had a bit of a heart-to-heart, uh, you're able to air some stuff and share what's what's going on. And so the final 10% is, at the end of that conversation, you might still have something in your head that you think, I haven't said that thing that was still a bit of an issue. Do I just leave it And because I don't want to upset them anymore? Um, but I'm not encouraging you to upset each other. I'm encouraging you to be able to say to that person, do you know what, I've got something else I need to say. I've got that final 10%. Would it be okay if I shared something else with you? Um, and that person then has the right to say, do you know what? No, I think we've had enough in this conversation right now. But most people, especially if you said it to me, it would bug me forever. What was that time, final 10%? What was it that they wanted to say to me? So they'll more often than not say yes. And because, again, you're such lovely people, I'm sure that you would handle that really well as well um, and not just sort of throw the last thing down. Um, but you'd handle it really well. So it's being able to say to somebody... Do you know what, there is just something else I need to say, need to get off my chest, um, and being able to handle that well. Um, 
Because what we're striving for is really authentic relationships in the church. Um, And maybe some of us need to sort of grow confidence and know that that's going to be received well. And so we've got two phrases here that we're giving you permission to use and that everybody in this room will now know if you've not been here on this Sunday, then you might be completely confused if somebody says, I need to have that final 10% conversation with you. Um, so it's that, are we okay? And um, I need to, we need to talk about the final 10%. So what does Jesus say if that conversation hasn't gone well? You've not been able to even, you know, maybe you said, are we okay? And the person's put their you know, hackles up and just not, I'm not going to talk to you, or it gets into a horrible argument um, and, a, and a difficult conversation. Jesus says, you should meet together with a couple of other people. Bring one or two other people into this. And now let me make this really clear. This is not step one. Step one is you go and meet with this person in private. So you're not going to bring it up in connect group or say to a bunch of others, um, oh, will you pray for a problem that I've got with um, with with Jenny? She's being a total idiot. Um, she's done this, 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 this. Oh, she's not. She's not. This is this is what happens if it's not the front row. Um, there is such a thing as spiritual gossip, um, and that's kind of when you ask somebody else to pray for a situation or pray for somebody else who's got all these issues because you're asking it in such a holy way. It's not gossip, is it? Um, but that's not okay, okay? Let's just get that really straight. That is not okay. If you want prayer for a situation, have people pray for you. Say, you know, I need to get my heart right. I'm going to have a difficult conversation with somebody this week. Would you just pray for me? If I ask, who are you going to have a conversation with? You say, you just have to wait and see. If I call you, it's going to be with you. <laughs> um, no, and we need to get in the in the habit of really encouraging each other to be accountable to this. And if you hear somebody else moaning about somebody else, you need to say to them, have you gone and had that conversation with them directly? If they haven't, if they're not willing to, then quit moaning about it. It's not a big enough deal to go and talk to that person. It's not a big enough deal to be whinging about. Um, sorry, I'm harsh. Um, so if you've been to them directly and there's still a bit of a mess, Jesus says, get some people alongside you who are going to be of help. You want somebody unbiased, somebody who can listen and somebody who can help. Um, so this might be a connect group leader, uh, might be a peer, might be um, somebody with professional experience, um, such as a counsellor. Now, I'm not saying you need to go and sort of get counselling because somebody's pushed in front of you in the coffee queue at the beginning of church. But there are times in life when you might need counselling. You might need some professionals to give you guidance. And that's real biblical sense, um, because they can be deep-rooted problems that can rise to the surface. And maybe that's within family relationships, within relationships with peers, or particularly, um, you know, quite common in marriage. And as a ch- as, not as a church, but as a church generally, we can sometimes think we're immune to any problems um, within marriage and within family relationships. Uh, we're not immune to that. We're not immune to divorce. In fact, the divorce rates with inside church are almost as high as outside of church. So I'd really encourage you to think about, never think yourself as sort of too high, too highly that you wouldn't need wise counsel. Humble yourselves and allow space for others to correct and shape you. So if you've shared with somebody wise and trusted, welcome them into the situation and they've prayed for you. Um, after, so if you've been to them first, it's not worked. You've welcomed somebody else in then maybe this is the point where you need to involve some leaders. So again, that might be your connect group leaders, it might be the leadership team, it might be the head of of that area, so um, the sort of 
like, you know, for example, Kate in terms of overseeing children's ministry. Um, it might be somebody um, within the church to help you pray and, and, and deal with the situation outside of the church. But it says, you know, that's the point when you can involve the church. And at the end of the passage, it says, if the person will not listen to the church, then we should t- treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. And at first glance, this seems a bit damning. It sort of says, you know, sounds like, right, if you're not going to listen to us, you can get out with all those other Gentiles. But if we look at how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors, then we get a better idea of what he probably meant by this. So in um, chapters 9 to 11 of Matthew, we see several accounts of Jesus eating and sharing and even partying with tax collectors. And I think Matthew focused on this so much because he was himself a tax collector who had been called by Jesus. He spends some of the time, sorry, so Jesus spends time reaching out and sharing the gospel with, with the unbelievers. Um, and he leaves us the great commission to do the same. So instead of sort of thinking, okay, at the end here it says, if they're not willing to listen to them, treat them as a Gentile, tell them to get out. I think instead it means love on them, accept them, invite them, keep challenging them to be transformed. When Matthew writes, treat them as a tax collector, he probably means treat them the way Jesus treated me. He loved me, he pursued me. He saw that I could be so much more with his love in me. So, you know, he encourages Jesus encouraged us to go to the ends of the earth to win people back, to win people into a life with him. But this doesn't mean that we should bend over backwards for those people who are causing conflict. Jesus expects us to be watchful and protective over his beloved church. So if somebody chooses to walk the other way or chooses to cause conflict within the church, and we've done everything in line with Matthew 18 in those three steps to seek reconciliation, then we also need to have the wisdom to say we love you, but we recognise that you are opting out of our fellowship and our community and our discipleship. You're always welcome here. And when you choose to draw back in and live under God's authority, then we will be here for you. It's not a rejection, but it's a protection. But it's also keeping those doors open. So this was underpinned underpinned how the early church managed the conflict in Acts 6. And it, like I say, it was handled so well that God's message continued to spread. The numbers of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. We see the Jewish priests, the old order, being transformed, saying, do you know what? These guys are doing something different here. Maybe they've got something right. Maybe something's going for them. And wouldn't it be incredible if the way the church managed conflict in our town actually um, offered a beacon of light to our communities. If we got this so right that it actually highlighted how good God is and, and how inspired his way of doing things are. So conflict is inevitable, but as the people of the church, we need to be really good at dealing with it. So that it's really normal for our church to be able to having relationships where we can check out with each other. Are we okay? And to be attractive to the outside because we're managing it really well. So as we, as we sort of thinking about this passage, about conflict inside of the church, some of you might also have thoughts about conflict outside of the church. Maybe God's bringing you a challenge about conflict um, you need to deal with in another situation. Maybe it's raised thoughts for you about a family member, a spouse, a co-worker. Maybe you need to have a, a we okay conversation with somebody this week. 
Maybe you need to go back to somebody and give them that last 10%. Maybe you need to apologise to somebody because you've not dealt with conflict in a, in a good way. You've dealt with it in your human way, following your parents or other role models rather than God's wisdom and what we can see in Matthew 18 and Acts 6. Maybe that's brought up memories of conflict that's been within a church or another environment that's still raw for you. And so what we'd love to do is just open up a bit of space for prayer. Um, You know, if you'd like to stand maybe now, and I'll just sort of do a bit of an invite for prayer. Um, Tom's going to come back and have a bit of worship.